All right, well, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited about today. I always am excited about Baptism Weekend and watching people respond and take their next steps. And so I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. And while you're turning, let me, let me just give you one more update. Uh, it, it's summertime, and I know you start traveling, but stay connected with your church. Even when you're gone, make sure you're, you're staying on the podcast or you can watch the videos through the app. But also, let me say this. I know we get out of our routines in summer, and, and that can, can take us away from church. And I, just, I always like to say this every summer, just a caution. Satan doesn't take the summer off. He doesn't go on vacation, and he hates you. And sometimes I feel a little bit like Johnny Cash because as a pastor, again, I hear things that don't make sense to me because I'm a pastor. They probably make sense to you because you're not one. But for me, they don't make sense because people will say, you know, we're just too tired and we just haven't been able to come to church. Or, you know, we've just been so busy. Uh, we just haven't been able to come to church. And, and that never makes sense to me because what I think is Satan still hates you. He still wants to destroy your family. And, and then I think to myself, and this is a question you could write in your Bible. It's a good question to ask yourself about once a week. What is more important to me than my connection with God and his people? Because what I think, you know, and I told the staff this the other day, kind of like Johnny Cash, I know when people take a step back from church for whatever the justification may be, I know that it's going to run into something. It's a train that's going to crash because the fit's going to hit the shan, because we're away from Jesus. Satan's still going to hate us. We've lost our connection with God and his church. And I kind of feel like Johnny Cash. I see the train coming, <laughs> coming around the bend. The fit's going to hit the shan, and they'll be back again. I see the train coming. Oh, yeah. I got talents you don't know about. <laughs> but but to me, what I say, because I love you, keep your connection with the church and with God during these summer months. And, and let me also just, I want to brag on our dream team. We have over 400 adults serving on our dream team. That's not counting our switch serve team. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. People that see the value. And they know if we, if we really say we want to look like Jesus, we have to serve because he didn't come to be served, but to serve. But I want to say to my dream team, if you're in this service, I, we love you and appreciate you. But from the staff, let me just shore up some things. I know we get out of our routine, but we still need to know when we send an, an invitation to serve, we still need to know whether you're saying yes or no. So when you get an invitation that says accept or decline, we just need you to pick accept or decline, check one. Don't wait to think, well, I might accept, but something cool might be going on and I might want to decline. Just pick. We don't care. Just pick. In fact, you can go in and preemptively tell us which weekends you're not available if you want to. But if, if, if you don't click accept or decline, we have no clue to know if you're going to be here or not. And, and we need 100, we have 100 Dream Team members a weekend to serve us and to serve our church. And so if you're a dream team, just click accept or decline and then just do whatever you pick. So if you pick accept, please show up um, just for the, for the love of Jesus and his body and the staff. Show up. And, and then like, could you imagine what worship would have been like if like, I don't know, the guitarist and the, the keyboardist and one of the singers clicked yeah, that they would be here and then just, I don't know, there was a two for one at Applebee's or something and they didn't make it. <laughs> Like, could you imagine that? Like, there's no drums or something. You know what I'm saying? So we love you and click that. Also, also, this would be a great time to serve. Our dream team serves so faithfully. And some of them have been serving for years. 
because they, they see the value in it and they love to serve the body of Christ, but they also take vacations. This would be a great time for some of our other church members to step up and say, hey, I'm gonna serve one time a month for the next three months so that our dream team can, so we can cover as our dream team is out serving in, in other ways. And in fact, we'd love to sign you up today. There's connection hosts that you can see. Um, there's also, if he's running around in this service, one of our, our uh, volunteer leaders, uh, Jared Lease was running around. He doesn't even work for us, by the way. He's just on a dream team, but he was running around with a clipboard signing people up to serve in Pathway Kids. And so, so you can sign up with him if you see him running around. Um, but, but we would love, uh, we, we want to honor our dream team and just we want to communicate and it's all good and wonderful and lovely. Amen. 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 It's going to be a good summer. Um, all right. I think that's all I needed to say about that, as Forrest Gump would say. Um, you're in Colossians chapter two and verse 11, and it says, this is Paul in, you know, when, when there's baptism weekend, sometimes what I love to do is I like to study things like I don't know what they mean. And like, I don't know what the significance is. Um, because when, on a baptism weekend, a lot of times I hear people say, you know, that's where you publicly profess your faith. And, and, and that's a part of it. Sure. Absolutely. That's a part of it. We celebrate that, but there's a lot of times, a lot of depth that we miss. And so I always feel like my job is to try to bring something up that we maybe haven't thought of it like that way before. And when I was in the series and we were, I was studying for Arise, I read something that really just, it just kind of really hit me, you know? And I thought, wow, I have never seen this this way, thought about it, and it was in kind of the context of baptism. And so I want to share that with you today. And so in Colossians 2, verse 11, Paul is writing and he says, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Now, time out. I'm really not going to go into depth on circumcision and exactly what it was and how it was done. Um, because as awkward as I like to make moments, that just might be too much for somebody. If you're not sure what circumcision is, when the service is over, just ask somebody. They would love to sit down and explain it. Just ask whoever brought you today, something like that. They would love to tell you all about that. Um, but essentially, just for our context today, circumcision was about cutting away the flesh. It was about cutting away the flesh. All right, that was the significance of it. And so Paul says, like, it, you know, that now there's a circumcision. In the Old Testament, that was done by the hands of man, that man actually had to, to cut away the flesh. But now he's saying in the new covenant, there's still circumcision. You need to hear this. There is still a circumcision in the New Testament, but it's a little bit differently and done a little bit differently. In other words, he says, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off or cut away when you were circumcised by Christ, okay? In other words, Christ is actually going to perform a circumcision. He's going to cut away the flesh. Paul actually would later describe as actually our hearts. He is cutting away the flesh from our hearts. So circumcision is about cutting away the flesh and, and increasing sensitivity. And so this is what he's saying is now in the new covenant, Christ circumcises us by cutting away the flesh off our heart to increase sensitivity. And then it tells us how Jesus does this. Verse 12, having been buried with him, in baptism. He actually connects the Old Testament idea of circumcision with the New Testament or new covenant concept of baptism. And he said, while in the old covenant, circumcision was outward, it was for males only, it was done by the hands of men. In the new covenant, everyone is circumcised by Jesus 
in the baptism waters. And, and so with that, I want to go back to the text that struck me. In Genesis chapter 17, you can flip there. Or we'll put it on the screen. In Genesis chapter 17, God is coming to Abraham. And um, this is part of Abraham's journey. And this was what stuck out to me. There's a principle in the Bible uh, called the principle of first mention, that when you're studying something in the Bible, um, the best thing you can do is go to the first time it's actually found in the Bible uh, because a lot of times that will offer context and clarity. And so the first time we see circumcision in the Bible is Genesis chapter 17. And this is what I was reading in studying for the, the Arise series uh, that, that struck me. And, and so I want to talk about it today. Genesis 17 verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, time out, Abram is 99 years old. This is 24 years after God has promised him descendants. He still has, the only son he has is Ishmael, who is not the son of promise, um, and so essentially there's still no promise from God that has come through, but Abraham has been trusting God for 24 years. And so now Abram, his name is Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God almighty walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this covenant with you, you will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. It's a different message, but God puts a huh in Abram. Abraham, Abraham. It's, it's significant because it kind of symbolizes God's breath or God's spirit, okay? And so God said, for now on, you're gonna be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come to you. Verse seven, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants. Verse eight, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for generations to come. Now, time out, because there, there's, there's something we need to understand here. God comes to Abraham and offers him a covenant completely based on grace. In other words, Abram or Abraham didn't do anything to earn the blessing that God offered him to become a nation, to make his name great, health, prosperity, increase, multiplication. Abraham, did, he was an idol worshiper. He didn't do anything to merit God's grace, right? So we are all about the grace of God. We've even been criticized for being too much about the grace of God. But we need to understand that you, you can only be saved because of the grace of God and that you are not saved because of your behavior, because of your religiosity, because of your church disciplines or your discipleship. You are not saved because you're a life group leader or because you attend church or because you worship. You are not saved because you pray every day. You are not saved because you act right. You are saved because Jesus did what you could not do in that he fulfilled the law in your place. You're not saved because of you. You're saved because of what Jesus did. And by faith, you come into covenant with his grace. You believe what Jesus did was enough for you, that he did your part, that he paid your bill, that he kept a law that you couldn't keep, that he walked in righteousness you can't walk in. So you are not saved by your performance. So if your behavior can't save you, your behavior can't sentence you. So once you've come to faith, 
right? Once you come to faith in Jesus, as long as you have faith in Jesus, your relationship with God doesn't change because of your behavior. If your behavior can't save you, it can't sentence you because faith in his grace is what saves you. Are, are you with me? Faith in his grace is what saves you. So as long as I have faith in his grace, this is why I can come to God on my worst day as well as my best day. Because Jesus is the mediator. He's the negotiator. He is the one holding my covenant with God, right? God made a covenant with Jesus. By faith, we enter into it. What that means, because he's the mediator of my relationship with God, I'm not. So my performance does not change my position with God. On my best day, I have a relationship with God. On my worst day, I have a relationship. In fact, the Bible says, on my worst day, I can come boldly to the throne room of grace and receive mercy when I need it most because Jesus paid the bill. It is all about grace. You can't do anything to merit the favor of God. Now, having said that, we need to understand that the concept of grace was to give us permanent access to come to close, as close to God as we want to be. You are as close to God as you want to be. Some of you could tweet that and be done for the day. So, so if my idea and concept of grace is, oh, because I'm covered by grace, I'll see how far I can get away from God and still be covered, you do not have grace, you have demonic doctrine. Because the whole concept of grace was to remove my performance through Jesus' performance so that I can draw near to God, as close to God as I want to be. Grace was given to us so we could move to God, not see how far away from God we could get. That's why the Bible has language like pursue righteousness, have fruits of righteousness, walk in righteousness, understand righteousness. Yes, your relationship is held by Jesus, but that does not excuse you from not pursuing God because of his grace. Are you with me? So Abram, back to our text, God comes to Abraham and says, here's all my grace and all of my goodness and everything I'm going to do. And then we get to verse 9. He said, essentially, but, but I need you to do something. In light of all this, I need, I need you to do something. And verse 9 says, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants. Verse 10, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep is that every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Here's what, here's what God said. I'm going to pour out grace, but you have to let me mark you. I'm going to pour out grace, but only those who are marked for me. I call this message marked for God. Marked for God. There's essentially two, I only have two points. It does not make the message any shorter. <laughs> Surely you know me by now. <laughs> but if you're reading this text, here's the first thing you could write down is that God's a covenant God. God is a covenant God. 
In fact, he says, Genesis 17, 7, he says, I'll confirm my covenant with you. Then he goes on to say, this is an everlasting covenant. I'll confirm my covenant. See, you need to understand, God will only work or only chooses to work or only can work through covenant. You need to understand, he's a covenant God. Every covenant that we see was not initiated by man, it was initiated by God. In fact, all throughout the Bible, there's the Adamic covenant or the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, the covenant with Jesus, whereby we have a covenant that we've entered into with God that's through Jesus. God, every time he works, he works through covenant. God only works. He is a covenant God. He desires to be in covenant. He desires to bless through covenant. He is a covenant God. Um, He tells Abraham, I'm going to make the covenant. Watch this. I'm going to make the covenant. I'm going to guarantee the covenant. I'm going to confirm the covenant. And then in Hebrews 6, we see where Abraham received the promise. In other words, God kept the covenant. God said, I'll make it. I'll confirm it. I'll guarantee it. And I'll keep it. Psalm um, 105 verse 8 says that God remembers his covenant forever. God remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. God is a a covenant God. You need to understand the significance because you're in covenant with a covenant God through Jesus. And I talked uh, two or three weeks ago when we were in Rise, I talked about covenant confidence and I talked about how the Bible makes it very clear that we are blessed with Abraham. In fact, you can read that in Galatians 3.14. It says that Jesus has redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. In other words, because we're in covenant with God, we actually get the covenant blessings of Abraham. And, And this is why you want to study your Bible because the Bible answers some questions. The Bible tells you whose you are. It tells you who you are. It tells you why you are. And it tells you what you have. Because you need to know if you're blessed with Abraham, what does that mean? And, and I, I, I preached it. I'm not going to re-preach that, but essentially it means this, that, that through, through Abraham, now we're justified or, or because of Jesus, we get the blessings of Abraham. That means justification by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted on him as righteousness right? Justification by faith. We get an inheritance. Abraham was promised an inheritance. And Ephesians 1 tells us that in Christ, we have an inheritance. Uh, We have prosperity. In other words, Abraham was very rich in gold and silver. And the Bible says that Jesus came and, and took on poverty. He became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. I'm not saying today that you can go out and kick your moped and it's going to turn into a Harley or that, that you can lay hands on your Pinto and it becomes a Maserati. That is not what I'm saying. God prospers us according to his purpose. And the reason Abraham was so prosperous is he was going to be a nation and a nation needs a treasury unless they want to be in debt to China. Amen. And so God wants to bless you and increase you. God wants you to have more than enough because God wants you to be a giver because God's a giver and he wants you to be like him. Right? So God wants to prosper you. God wants to give you health and healing, right? We know that Abraham lived, God gave him a long life, longer than average. And God totally restored he and Sarah's body so that they could, could obviously procreate. And that we even know at the age of 137 years old, Abraham fathered six more children. 
So God did a healing work in his body. It's health and healing. God, God heals us. Psalm 91 says that he satisfies us with long life. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all of our iniquity and heals all of our diseases. And then the covenant was about generational impact, that the generations after you will be blessed by God. All of that is promised to you because God is a covenant-keeping God. God is a covenant God. And by faith in Jesus, we have entered into that covenant, and we need to understand that. But when I read Genesis 17, while I see that God is a covenant God, I also see this. You could write this down, point number two, that God is looking for a consecrated people. A consecrated people. Uh, Genesis 17, 9, then God said to Abraham, you must keep my covenant. And then in verse 10, he says, this is the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. They're going to be marked. Their flesh is going to be cut away. God's looking for a consecrated people. This is not a word that you hear a lot about in church anymore. It doesn't sell books. It doesn't get Twitter followers. It doesn't get Instagram posts. We know if, you know, when we do our morning devotion time, we have to put it on Instagram so everybody knows we did our morning devotion time, but you don't see any of those devotion times about consecration. If you want proof, go to Twitter, put hashtag consecrated and see what comes up and then put hashtag blessed and see what comes up. You'll find it's trending. Consecration's never trending. These are terms, they're theological concepts and ideas that I grew up with in our church. We talked about consecration. We talked about sanctification. We talked about holiness. And these are words you don't hear anymore because they are not popular to a Western church, right? In the Western church, you know, uh, in John, it talks about the, the vine and the branches. And he said, in me, you'll bear much fruit. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. And because of him, we can bear much fruit. And in the Western church, we are infatuated with our relationship with the fruit. We're more infatuated with our relationship with the fruit than we are with the vine. Oh, bless me, increase me. I should have more. I should do better. And we're more infatuated with fruit. In fact, we're so infatuated with fruit, don't ever talk to us about pruning See, God is a covenant God, but his covenant only benefits a consecrated people. Consecrated, it's the voluntary act of being set apart to God. Set apart to. Voluntary act of being set apart to, not set apart from. See, I grew up in a church where we were set apart from the world. And our focus was the world, their sin, their activity. In fact, I was, I was raised where we couldn't go to the movies because the world was at the movies. Now, we would gather in our safe little churches where there were no sinners around, and we would talk about our desire to reach the lost, and then we would preach against anyone ever getting near a lost person at all. We got to be separate. God called us to come out from among them and be ye separate unto me. Y'all hadn't heard my Southern Fried preacher was it Zach Brown has a little, that song, a little kitchen fried. You hadn't heard my Southern fried preacher. That's what we say. You got to come out from my, be safe. Can't go there. The world goes there. Can't, you know, my dad played football in high school. His parents never came to one of his games because the world went to football games. 
But yet we're going to, God, give us a burden for the lost. As long as we're never around one, as long as one never sits by us in church. I've said it many times, but if we are doing church right, Sunday morning is going to be a mixture of fragrances. It's, it's going to have perfumes and colognes and anointing oils and tequila and marijuana. If we're really doing church right, it's going to smell like all those things. If we're really doing church right, one day you're going to sit next to someone who scares you. If we're really doing it right, right? Because if we go to church and everyone smells like us, looks like us, talks like us, acts like us, we're not a church. We're a religious social club. If we're really a church and no one can come in and say, I'm addicted to this, I'm struggling with that, this is falling apart, this is broken, we're not a church. We're a religious society. And so he said, I want you to be set apart to me. I want you to be set apart to me. Um, it, you know, there's a couple of things. We have a couple of tensions in the body of Christ. As men, we, we have to deal with the fact that we are the bride of Christ. Women have to deal with the fact that you're sons of God. Work that out however you will. Women are sons of God and men are the bride of Christ. But because we're his bride, when God talks about consecration, just to give you a context, if you got married, you said something like forsaking all others. When we're talking about being set apart to God, that's what we're talking about, forsaking all others, being set apart, being consecrated to, set apart to, marked by God, marked for God, I am his. One pre preacher said it this way, he said, the world's become so churchy and the church so worldly, I can't tell the difference anymore. If I'm really set apart to God, then you should be able to tell I'm a believer without a fish on the back of my car. It's true. Right? If I'm really a believer, there's something different about me. I'm set apart too. I don't behave like, I don't conduct myself like. Right? If I'm a believer, the Holy Spirit is in me. And if the Holy Spirit comes in a person whether you like it or not, he starts to change the person. If you say you're a believer and there's been no change, I don't know what you're a believer in. I didn't say perfection. I said process. None of us, hey, I don't get perfection, but I'm in a process. Are you with me? Because I want to be set apart to God. Um, Romans 12 Romans 12, verse 1, Paul gives us a picture of consecration in the New Testament. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you would present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing or acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is about our response to God. So first of all, he tells us why we should be consecrated. And here's his answer, because God's merciful. Isn't it interesting that, that he doesn't start with because God can judge you and send you to hell and destroy you and sneeze on you and you wouldn't exist anymore? He, he doesn't start that way. He said, no, 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 no. Worship comes from our response of the mercy of the goodness of God. The reason some people don't have worship is they've never had an encounter with the goodness of God. Because when we're singing hallelujah, what a savior, if you really needed one and he really was it, you would sing hallelujah. 
right? Worship's our response. And so Paul says, hey, Romans 1 through 11, I've been telling you about how good God is. In Romans 4, I told you that, that you get the benefit of the promise, not because of your works, but because of faith, just like Abraham. In Romans chapter 6, I told you sin can't have dominion over you because you're not under law, you're under grace. Romans chapter 8, I told you that the love of God, you can't go anywhere that the love of God can't find you and cover you. What would separate you from the, from the love of God? And that you are more than conquerors in Christ because of his love. And so Paul has been talking about the goodness and the mercy of God. And then he gets to Romans chapter 12, having established how good God is. And he tells the Romans, in view of how good he is, this is why you separate yourselves unto him. People will not be consecrated to an evil God, but they will be consecrated when they understand he is a good God. Are you with me? Why do you think the enemy always fights your perception of God? It's the same thing he did in Genesis when he told Adam, God must not be good because he's holding some things back from you. Why is he always challenging God's goodness? Because you will not be set apart to a mean God, but you will be set apart to a good God. And when you see how good God is, like Paul explains it in Romans, you're like, man, if he is that good, if he is that loving, if he is that kind, if he is that merciful how could I not let him mark me for himself and be consecrated unto him? So he says, this is why you're consecrated. But then he says, how are you consecrated? Well, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Kind of an oxymoron when you think about it, because what we know about Old Testament sacrifices is they didn't live. Which is probably why they never got off the altar. Because the challenge of a living sacrifice is staying on the altar. I didn't expect many amens there, but, but isn't it the truth? Like he's given us this idea of a living sacrifice, and he's like, okay, wait a second. The Old, Test the Old Testament sacrifices died. For the New Testament, sacrifices live, but they live on an altar. It's an altar of death. Remember, circumcision is about cutting away the flesh and living by the Spirit. It's about cutting away my desires, what I want, how I want things to go, and living by sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. He said, here's what a living sacrifice does. They get on the altar and they choose to stay there. They're living dead things. I think he said it this way to the Galatians. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In other words, I'm dead, Christ is living in me. What's he saying? I'm on the altar. See, I didn't give my life to Jesus. You know why? Because I was dead. Theologically, I had no life to offer Jesus. I had death. And what he did is he filled me with life until the death left. So all I offered him was my death. And all he offered me was his life. And so now I'm living, but it's not actually me because I was dead. Now he's living through me. And the way I do this life is on an altar where I choose to stay dead so he can continue to live. It's a living sacrifice. It's a way of living. It says present your, present your bodies. Present your bodies. The word present, the verb tense of that verb in the Greek is uh, present, active, indicative. I, I'm not a grammarian. Um, I don't really even speak English. I'm East Texan. Um, <laughs> and you know it's true. 
right? Hey, y'all done? Since she's up, get me a soda. No, we don't say soda. Everything's cup here. Coke. Everything's Coke here. Give me a Coke. Yeah, we don't say soda or pop. Those are northerners. <laughs> Anyways, but present active indicative. I'm pretty sure this is what that means. To present, represent, 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 present, represent. In other words, every moment of every day, I'm presenting myself on an altar. I'm choosing to stay on an altar every minute of every day. I'm presenting myself. I think Paul said it this way. I die daily. What was he saying? I present my body a living sacrifice. Every day I say, I'm going to live on the altar. It's a sacrifice of life. It is a living sacrifice. In other words, let me say it this way. I am living as a sacrifice. I am living as an offering. This is my worship. This is my response to him. I am living. See, believe it or not, worship is not those 25 minutes while we're waiting on everybody to get here so I can preach. That's not actually worship. Worship is the life that I live consecrated unto God. My spiritual worship is presenting myself, my whole self, my body on his altar and choosing to stay there. I'm going to say something that's going to be a little challenging. You're like, I thought you already were. <laughs> if your life for God never feels like a sacrifice, you're probably not living it on an altar. If we're a living sacrifice, our life unto God is going to feel like a sacrifice. And if our life unto God never feels like a sacrifice, then it, it may be that we're really not living on his altar. You, you cannot overcome sin without sacrifice. I don't know about you, but for me, sin is pretty easy to do. Don't have to work real hard, especially when I was real good at it. Right? Is there anybody here that I just, you know, pastor, I try to sin. I just can't, you know, I, I do my best. I tell you, I just do my best, but I just, We're in church, we can be honest. Sin is easy. Sin is fun. If sin weren't fun, I wouldn't have a job. You can't overcome sin without suffering because it causes your flesh to come on an altar and die there. It, there's suffering involved. Consecration involved. I, I think the problem with the Western church today is that we, we've made the gospel all covenant and no consecration, all blessing and no sacrifice. Um, Peter, Peter said this, he said, rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings. Rejoice. He said, here's... This is New Testament Bible. Rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's suffering. See, we, we forget this because we tell everybody, oh, you follow Jesus, everyone, it's great. You get on the love boat and, and go for a dock, come by, and Captain Steubing just takes us to heaven. <laughs> love, soon we'll be making another run. Love boat. 
right? That's what, that's what we tell people, right? And then the fit hits the shan and we're like, oh my God, I don't know if I can believe in God anymore. I lost my job. He has left me, abandoned me. I'm not even sure he was real in the first place. Because in the Western church, our idea of suffering is when we get to church late and they're out of coffee. It's like, oh my God. How am I going to worship today? There's no free coffee. I got to have at least two cups before I get my worship on. It's going to be okay. Like our idea of suffering is coming to the 9 a.m. service on spring forward weekend. Like, oh my God. I've suffered for the kingdom. I was going to come to church, but the kids are just unruly. That's why you have a belt. Don't write me an email before you read Proverbs where it says foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them. If you don't want your, if you don't want your child to be a fool, you got to drive it out. I can tell you my daddy believed in that. He had a belt that sounded like he was pull starting a riding lawnmower when it came out of the loops. <laughs> Peter says this. Peter says this, 1 Peter 4, chapter 1. This is what he says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Since he suffered in the flesh. Watch this. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You see that? Do you know why I think a lot of people lose faith in God? is because they were never armed with the idea that following Jesus may mean that you suffer. Because like right now, if we were in China, we could all be arrested for trying to do this. Some of us put in prison for just trying to do this. There's this pastor, he told this story, well-known pastor, but he told the story of a, a, he went, was over in China and this lady pulled inside and said, are, are you a pastor? Yeah, from the, from the United States, yeah. She said, I've heard, is it, is it true that there are like churches on every corner, like all over the place in the United States? He said, yes, ma'am. Is it also true that most people don't go? He said, unfortunately, yeah, it's true. She had no context because she has to walk one time a month at night, long distances to get to an underground church for fear of being arrested or punished for her faith, yet she does it. So she had no concept of here are churches that you can attend anytime you want to, and people think, eh, I'm just coming busy. Like we don't have a concept of, of suffering. And, and, and Peter said this, hey, you need to arm yourselves with a way of thinking. Jesus said it this way, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. I didn't, I didn't come to, to bring everything together. I came to bring a sword. I came to set family members against each other. I mean, these are all words of Jesus we don't talk about. And when we're talking about this idea of consecration, consecration means that I'm not going to get to live the way I want to live. I mean, sometimes you make the comparison, and I know in my own life I've made this comparison when I'm struggling with something. I think, God... 
this is such a hard struggle. And then I think, well, but compared to being executed today for my faith, this seems really stupid. Because today people will lose their heads because of their faith in Jesus. We love to sing the song, I Have Decided. We forget it was written by a man who watched his family tortured because he would not renounce Christ. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. You know, I, I think the, the reason sometimes people are so quick to turn away from God when things go bad is because their relationship with God didn't actually cost them anything. See, like for me, I've got too much invested. My relationship with God has cost me too much. Is it all by his grace? Yes. But has living the life that God has called me to cost me? Yeah, it has. Not like some people around the world, not at all. But it's cost me something. I don't get to say what I want to say, go where I want to go, do what I, I've had to, to modify and change and let the Holy Spirit work and yield and surrender and give up control. And I've been asked to do things by God I didn't want to do, wasn't comfortable doing, didn't like doing. But I can rejoice in suffering. Are, are you with me? There's a scripture... Um, when we're talking about consecration, I shared this with the men. Um, it's in Isaiah 28, verse 6. Isaiah 28, verse 6 says that God will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back. The battle at the gate. So he's a, he's a spirit of justice to those who need to judge, and he's a source of strength to those who need to fight. And I thought, well, these are two really cool things about God. He's a spirit of justice when I need to make decisions. And he's a source of strength when I have a battle. And then I realized that these things are not, uh, they are indeed actually connected. In fact, they're not separate concepts. They're actually sides of a coin. He's a spirit of justice. In other words, he is the standard of judgment and he is the source of strength. The standard of judgment, the source of strength. The standard of judgment, the source of strength. In other words, to the degree that I allow him to be my standard is to the degree that I can expect him to be my source. If he is my standard, he is my source. If he is not my standard, he cannot be my source. To the degree that he is my standard, he is my source. I can't expect to set my own standard. I can't expect to let the world set the standard. I can't say, well, I'm gonna live my standard, I'm gonna live the world's standard, but still expect him to be my source. Even though that's what we do. Well, I'm better than them. I, I serve on Dream Team, they don't serve. I give more money. Well, everybody else says this is okay. Well, it's legal in several states now. Who's your standard? See, you need him to be your standard because you need him to be your source. He's the source of everything. You need him to be your source. He has to be your standard. How, how crazy is it to think that I could live my own standard or the cultural standard and still expect him to be my source? How crazy is it to think that I could benefit from his covenant without being marked and consecrated unto him? 
Here was the scripture that blew my mind. Genesis 17, verse 13 and 14. As I was reading this, God said, all must be circumcised. Your bodies will bear the mark. That's where I got the title. Your bodies will bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. Any male who fails to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family for breaking the covenant. I never put the idea together that God offers a covenant by grace, but it only benefits a consecrated people. If he's going to be the source, he has to be the standard. I can't live for me and expect all that he's offered. If I want to partake in the covenant freely, God has come, just like Abraham, God has come to each of us through Jesus and said, I want to bless you. I want to increase you. I want to multiply you. I want to prosper you. I want to give you health. Through Jesus, that's what he's told all of us. But then he said, but I need you to be marked. I need you to be consecrated. If you want to benefit from this covenant, your part is to be set apart unto me. You have to be consecrated. You see, you know what's interesting with church today versus New Testament church? I'm not knocking it. I'm just making comparison. In, in, the, in the New Testament church when it was born, on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the gospel, he didn't say, now I'm going to ask the organist to come. I want you all to bow your heads. We're going to lower the lights so no one's looking around. Now, if you want to make a profession of faith in Jesus and have a relationship with him, I want you just to real quick sneak your hand up and put it back down so nobody sees, so you're not embarrassed. And then we'll pray a sinner's prayer together. None of that's in the Bible. P Peter preached the gospel and they say, what do we have to do to be saved? He said, repent from your sin and be baptized. In other words, th there's, no, there's no secrecy about it. The whole idea of being set apart to God is it's not supposed to be a secret. The whole part about coming to Christ is we don't do it under cover of darkness like Nicodemus. We do it like on the day of Pentecost where we all head down to the sea and get dunked. Like, like nowadays we think, well, I prayed a prayer, I'm good. But, but in the Bible times, the only way they knew you were following Jesus is they baptized you. Why? Because when you went into the water, Jesus cut your heart and marked you by God and cut off the flesh and said, now you're not going to depend on you. You're going to depend on me and you're going to be marked by me for my covenant. Why do you think this comes right after Ishmael? Because Ishmael was Abraham's greatest effort in his own flesh. And God comes to him and says, hey, uh, so you worked really hard in and of your flesh. We're going to need to cut your flesh away. And I think this is probably a hard sell for Abraham when he went back to the family. Got around, guys, I've got a word from the Lord. What is it? Well, we all need to be circumcised. I think they're like, okay, hang on. Tell us again what God said. And the neighbor was like, oh, he said you got to cut the foreskin. Wait, wait, wait. Are you sure he didn't just say your skin? <laughs> like, I, think that was, I think you may have missed that one, Abraham. Just... But no, Abraham said, no, every male, and now New Testament, New Covenant, circumcision is every person, but every male has to be circumcised if we're going to participate in the covenant.
Paul comes to the Colossians and says, hey, while we don't do a physical circumcision anymore, there's still a circumcision for those who want to participate in the covenant. God has come to every person and said, hey, I want to bless you. I want to increase you. I want to prosper you and give you hope. And then he says this, I'll confirm the covenant. I'll promise the covenant. I'll guarantee the covenant. I'll keep the covenant. But if you want it, you're going to have to be marked for the covenant. And so he's given us now baptism. And now it's not men, it's everyone. And we can go into the water and God cuts the flesh away. And what we're saying is, God, you have marked me. I will no longer live the same. I will live on an altar to the best of my ability. I will not be perfect, but I will strive not to live according to my flesh. I will live through a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. I am branded and marked, set apart unto you, consecrated and given to you for the rest of my life to lead me, to direct me, to use me, to guide me. I belong to you. And that's what we're doing this weekend. That's what water baptism is all about. Set apart unto God for his service, for his use, for his purpose, for his plan. I want you to know before we go out there, those who are prepared to be baptized or those who may choose to be baptized. I want you to know that's what's happening. You're, you're being buried with Jesus so you can be resurrected with Jesus and the water of sense is, is a grave. But when you go into the water, Jesus does a surgery on your heart where he cuts away the flesh and he brands you. And when you come up, you have a new life where you don't live based on the flesh. You live by sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, set apart, consecrated, and marked for God. Amen. Amen. Man, why don't you give him one more, one more praise? <laughs> yeah. And why don't you stand with me and